0: Anyone who's this mad at a former employer after three years should probably talk about it with their spouse or their therapist, not in a 17,000-word piece.
1: Welcome to the Powers That Be daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Monday, December 18th, which means it's Media Monday. Today, John Kelly and I discussed the lengthy and vengeful manifesto published by former New York Times opinion editor James Bennett about his former employer, claiming that the Times has lost its way. Bennett, who was fired from the paper back in 2020 for publishing that infamous Send in the Troops op-ed from Tom Cotton, says the Times is now too beholden to its young liberal staffers and a group of incurious subscribers. Its commitment to actual journalism, he says, is no more. It's a bombshell essay that sparked a lot of debate in media circles, and John and I dig into it from every angle. We'll discuss all that and much, much more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. tired of sleeping hotter than hell i sure am i sleep hot there's something crucial about sleep that eludes us when we're too warm too uncomfortable and too caught in the web of our own thoughts to drift off and while curiosity fuels our days science tells us that cool sleep recharges our nights that's where chili pad by sleep me comes in meet the bed cooling system that elevates the quality of human life through cool sleep Visit wwwsleepsleepme slash powers because you're not just investing in better sleep, you're creating a better life. Happy Monday, everybody. It is the final Monday before Christmas, as our producer Bob just pointed out before jumping on this recording. If it's Monday, it's Media Monday. And if it's Media Monday, you know we are Mm -hmm. talking about James Bennett's 16,000 word blowtorch takedown of the New York Times. Uh, was that, that all it was? In? Just
0: 16,000? Oh, uh, according <laughs> to
1: Politico, I didn't do a I didn't do a control F paste word count situation. James Bennett, the former opinion page editor of the New York Times who was forced out in June of 2020, after publishing Tom Cotton's call to send in the military to deal with uh, some of the looters and rioters that were destroying property in in big cities uh, after the murder of George Floyd in 2020. Clearly, Bennett has a chip on his shoulder here, but has published a really substantive, thoughtful, siren call criticism of the New York Times and how it has lost its way. I'm joined, of course, today by John Kelly, former employee of the New York Mm -hmm. times as well (laughs) to discuss all of this. I mean, John, this, this really, uh, landed in, in a way that I, you know, I can't remember anything else like this landing in such a way in recent years in the media world. I mean, this is a tell all from a former New York times employee, uh, taking a scalpel to the place. What was your first reaction when you saw this? And my, my first reaction was, I didn't know James Bennett was at The Economist. My second reaction was, I really like the font. I'm a big font guy. I really like the font that The Economist uses. So if anyone out there at The Economist can uh, DM me the font for this piece, I really appreciate it. And I agreed with a lot of it, but you know, <laughs> I think you and I might have some slight disagreements here and there. What was your first reaction? Well, good to know you're a font guy. You know, I feel like after
0: all these years, it's it's nice for us to to learn new things about each other. So, <laughs> well, last night when we were both reading this, I was uh, I texted you. we were trying to figure out what to talk about, and I said, "Let's just talk about Bennett." And you were you were on the Peloton preparing for the uh, the Venice uh, Fireman Calendar shoot, I'm sure. And so you you, you agreed completely, and, and we we expressed uh, some of our slight differences. So I will give you my like top five list of of revelations because. Uh, I'm a sort of timesologist, uh, amateur timesologist in, in my old age, and uh, I, I had a, a lot of thoughts here. First of all, you know, in terms of the precedent for this, I, mean, I felt like I was reading the 95 Theses or, or the, you know, the, the, the sort of the Flight 93 essay about the Republican Party uh, from a number of years ago where it, it, this was meant—this was, was a long piece that was meant to— Create Sturm und Drang and Agatha, and it was it was it was a bomb meant to detonate. Point two: This is also sort of a clearly living, breathing book proposal in real life. I'd always wondered with Bennett what what the payout situation was. So if you if you zoom back and recall. Bennett started his career as a Times copy boy in the metro section, had a brilliant tenure-ish career, became the bureau chief in Jerusalem, and then became the editor of The Atlantic in the sort of mid-David uh, Bradley era, so I think after Cullen Murphy and, and Michael Kelly and before the jeff goldberg era um, when it was a money losing quasi academic uh, ambition um, and then left there to be the times opinion editor which which you know probably meant that the atlantic wasn't wasn't paying uh, anna winter money back then and he was picked to replace andy rosenthal who had been the like 30 something year times veteran by ag Sulzberger's dad arthur but A.G. Salzberger, who factors in this significantly, was a Bennett guy. I remember when A.G. first got that job, and full disclosure, I went to high school with A.G. Salzberger back when he was Arthur, also. So I, I have a, mm. um, we're not friends. I didn't know him well, but I, I, I've, I've sort of seen this rake in his progress. And he was a Bennett guy. Uh, when Arthur, A.G., got the job and he went to meet all the Silicon Valley leaders, he went with Kara Swisher and James Bennett. Everyone assumed that James was going to do the opinion job for a while. And then when Dean retired, he'd get that job. It was just sort of set up. That way, but what happened? And Bennett recounts this clearly. And by the way, like I know a lot of these guys loosely. I think they're all um, pretty reasonable people. Bennett, Ag, Dean, etc. But like they all sort of, I think, touched the corner of each other that just lit everyone on fire. And mm. um, James became a didactic, polarizing figure at the Times because he believed he had this mandate, and I think he did, to sort of represent non-democratic views in what is obviously the sort of democratic paper of of record. And and anyone who disagrees with that is crazy, and he pushed it too far, you know, uh, many people felt. He was the Brett Stevens, the Barry Weiss of it all, and I think the, the newsroom w- was annoyed at him. He was probably annoyed at them. He felt like he was doing his job, and it seemed like it's clear that he felt that he was following his mandate and that the, the Times had stopped following its own mandate. Okay, and then just to trickle down these other points very quickly here, it was unclear to me. I'd always wondered if Bennett got severance in the in the situation, in the scene he describes early on with A.G. Salzberger. He asks to be fired, and then Resigns. I presume that there was a an exchange that happened, and that explains mm. the the two and a half year uh, or three year plus gap between now and then. Relatedly, point two: anyone who's this mad at a former employer after three years should probably talk about it with their spouse or their therapist, not in a seventeen thousand word piece. And here is the other thing: point one. Bennett makes one great point in this sixteen or seventeen thousand word manifesto, and it's buried and it's in one sentence. And he says that, uh, and he's totally, totally right. The extraordinary sort of insight into the times is that in the process of about 15 years it went from a sudden near-death experience circa 2008 to 10 when Arthur took on the predatory loan from Carlos Slim for like 250 million dollars at like a 10 percent interest rate which you know is probably market um, but is significant um, and then a sort of snapback boomerang rapid success story which wasn't rapid it took you know i think the, the paywall has been around for almost 15 years now where it came back to life again and bennett feels that that whiplash absolutely changed the institution because it brought in a whole new generation of people it pushed out other generation people and it made the times feel like it was absolutely beholden to a subscriber base almost the same way that msnbc is probably beholden to a ratings base so
1: anyway that's my top five david letterman james bennett uh special for you peter I think I wrote down like a top three or four, but I mean, it's going to end up being like a top seven or something. So I'm not even going to create a list here. The floor is yours. Manifesto is right. I mean, I when I was a, in journalism school at NYU in 2004, pre-social media era, I had a lonely summer in New York City, you know, I was interning at a now defunct, semi-defunct basketball magazine called Dime Magazine, writing profiles Whoa. of high school basketball stars that would later go to the NBA. We put Dwight Howard on the cover when I was there, I think. Mm -hmm. Uh, I remember I I always wanted to read The Odyssey. And I was like, I'm going to commit the summer to reading The Odyssey. I wander around the East Village reading The Odyssey. And I feel like this James Bennett piece took me longer to finish than The Odyssey.
0: Yeah, yeah, totally. Like, I still
1: didn't get to the final graph. Sorry, James. You hit on something that James hit on that I have been ranting about for years from the outside. I think I mentioned this in a Vanity Fair Hive piece years ago. Definitely tweeted about it. But and this is where our conversation aligns, you being the business guy and the Kremlinologist of the Times and me being the like journalism nerd. The drift from the Times being an advertising business to a subscriber business happened when James was at the Atlantic, he writes. He comes back. It's a totally different world. And you are exactly right. Attendant with that shift is that the Times and most newspapers who are advertising-supported and that's the whole reason, you know, newspapers this whole century were, you know, quote unquote, unbiased. They had to reach the largest audience possible and be as inoffensive as possible so as to get those sweet, sweet ad dollars. Um, when you become a subscriber business, you are suddenly beholden to tote bag carrying Elizabeth Warren. She persisted shirt wearing mm-hmm. liberals. And that is the product of that the New York Times was selling to a subscribers, to their consumers. It was a center-left product that was being marketed. And so it became very hard to publish opinion pieces in the New York Times, whether it was the Send in the Troops op-ed, or he writes about a time he published a bunch of letters from Trump supporters. You know, that is not what the liberal audience of the New York Times wants to read. And he said that also offended the newsroom. And in particular, one reporter, uh, he doesn't say who, he says it's a guy who told him, would you publish a bunch of letters from Obama supporters? And and Bennett writes that he was sort of flabbergasted by that because they publish letters from Obama supporters all the time because they're (laughs) a liberal product. And you know he was taken aback by that. But I think it's something that needs to be acknowledged that the decision to become a subscriber business means that you are selling something different than you were when you were an advertising-supported business. The, the other thing that like I need to like scratch here is Bennett really seems to be embodying the, the crankiness, the anxieties, <laughs> the sanctimony of journalists – our age, John, and older, Mm. Um, when I was at aforementioned NYU journalism school, I mean, all of the things James writes about were what he wishes the times was uh, still. Those are the things you would aspire to. And let me say what those are. To approach the world listening, uh, to admit going into a story, you know nothing. Like you should approach stories from a position of, I am here to learn and I'm not going in with the headline already written. It was that you work hard and climb your way up the ladder. And so he writes about something I wrote about in my study of Twitter for the the Shorenstein Center at Harvard back in 2013. I I was talking about this a long time ago. It used to be you graduated college, say you graduated Yale. To get to the New York Times, you would go work at the, like, Anniston, Alabama newspaper. Right. uh, And you live in in Alabama, and then you would maybe, if you were lucky – get a job at like the St. Pete Times. And then maybe if you were lucky, you would get a job covering the elderly beat and metro section of the New York Times. And then maybe one day you would work your way up and be sent to Iowa to cover a long shot presidential candidate. And then maybe that would be a break to cover national politics. In that process, you learn to respect people outside of your cultural bubble. Bennett talks about how that process allows journalists to treat people as three-dimensional and not two-dimensional. You understand, perhaps, uh, that, you know, and I I learned this when I was living in South Carolina back in 2007, covering that primary. You know, I I grew up Catholic and my my other grandma was Presbyterian, but I had to go into evangelical churches and go into Mm -hmm. black AME churches and like figure out what makes those people tick. Uh, And you learn that just because people go to church or just because people own guns, they're not bad people just because they vote Republican. They're not yeah. terrible enemies. And and that's this is sort of the, the, the thing that Bennett's generation of journalists came up believing, that you would go out into the world, listen, not be hostile to other parts of the country. Today, if you graduate Yale, you can go directly to The New York Times and within one year or two years be covering national politics. And so that is, a, is an important element of this that really, really stuck with me, that one reason the newsroom... Uh, is perhaps more culturally liberal than it used to be, is they don't have to get the like uh, Ivy League <laughs> campus stuff shaken off them yeah. uh, in the process of climbing up the ladder to being very important people at the New York Times. And he is just so aghast <laughs> that this world of journalism that we now live in is different than the one he came up in. I am also aghast, John, but also like I realize. But yeah. things have changed. And it seems like he's just really grumpy about the fact that they have.
0: There's definitely, there was a clearly a Leitmotif motif of the, the Hamby Twitter is not real life in there that was completely admirable. It's funny. You had me hallucinating, imagining a young Peter Hamby walking around Alphabet City with the Odyssey. Um, just, uh, um, literally it, Alphabet it, City. It, yeah. Um, it made me think of um, <laughs> the, uh, the first word in the Iliad, uh, for those of us who taking core curriculum classes, is rage. I, I just happened to, as I was thinking of reading that last night, I just kept thinking of um, Saul Bellows said he wrote Herzog blind with rage because I think his, his wife had had an affair with him. And, and I just felt like this piece was still blind with rage in a, in a pedagogical, academic way. One funny detail, and I, I know we probably have to go to break in a moment, but but just to, to squeeze this in, one thing that Bennett is pissed about, just you know, plainly, is he feels like... AG Salzberger didn't have his back. And if you do remember back to those days, Salzberger initially defended him, Dean Becky defended him, uh, and the newsroom was in an anarchy. Uh, and 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 they and they wouldn't let him stay. And and Salzberger eventually caved. Now, Sol- Salzberger, nice, good guy, smart guy, but not a um, you know, he's someone who Went from Fieldston to Brown to the Oregonian to whatever else to a couple of newsroom jobs at the New York Times mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, into management. Like he's had his whole life sort of, you know, segmented out to be the publisher of the New York Times. Um, and his father lived through that near-death experience. This was not a person who was worth holding on to in his opinion. And if you look at this, the statement that AG released after the piece came out... He made it personal and said, you know, Bennett was a a, implied that Bennett was was a poor leader and and had lost the room. And at the end of the day, Mm. the conflict that Bennett points out here is The Times. Yes, is a journal is a journalistic institution. He views this in purely academic terms, but it's a business, too. And Mm. um, I don't think any other leader, whether they were, you know, we, we saw it last weekend with Penn. You know, Liz McGill lost the room. The board fired her. Bennett lost the room. A.D. said he had to go, and I think it's hard to argue with that.
1: Yeah, and we're going to break, but it should be mentioned. One thing we didn't discuss in this segment so far is that Bennett was a candidate for the top job at the Times. Uh, totally. This happened, and didn't get the job. On top of being forced out without severance, that sucks. Uh, but, you know, this is the job he wanted. He admits that, you know, and uh, he thought... The way to get that was to play the long game, but he was shocked that he was forced out in such a way and, and is upset that he's not the editor of the New York Times these days. Um, John, we're going to take a quick break and come back. And we are go- you know what? We're going to keep talking about this. <laughs> quick math. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash powers that be, netsuite.com slash powers that be. That's netsuite.com slash powers that be. Welcome back to Media Monday, everybody. Uh, we're talking about the New York Times because that's what we talk about if you work in media, really. John, one thread in Bennett's essay that i found interesting and i I, I don't totally agree with Hmm. is he and by the way this is true of of barry weiss and every every guest that gets booked on bill maher i feel like sometimes (laughs) and the entire class of anti-politically correct whataboutist conservatives they seem very fixated on the year 2020 Mm-hmm. As is the year everything broke. Obviously, and like it's not just that. Like in the heat of the Me Too moment, like let's talk. Let's say 2017 through 2021. This is like peak DEI era. If you're Ron DeSantis, newsrooms changed. Employees uh, revolted. Everything became a witch hunt. Everything was identity focused, etc. There's some elements of truth to that. I do think news organizations have started to snap back from that Trump era kind of illiberalism as Bennett talks about. You see this with, I think, Mark Thompson at CNN, Mm. who's mentioned in this piece um, as somebody who wanted the New York Times to uh, perhaps appeal to more conservatives out there in the world. I guess what I'm saying is I think that, you know, CNN is a good example here. Everything in the Trump era was combat, identity, partisanship. Journalists became crusaders for those things. I think, this is the Marty Baron and me talking, news organizations have tamped down some of that, some of those elements uh, in their newsrooms, some of the, that tenor uh, in terms mm-hmm. of the news coverage. And I'm not sure the New York Times is as en fuego with that stuff. And I'm not sure their slacks are as a light as they were back in 2020. Do you sort of see what I'm saying? Like, I feel like yep. Bennett is very fixated on the moment he was forced out of that place. The Tom Cotton op-ed uh, being the reason why um, he has a reason to be angry about that. But I do think that it's not necessarily true that the times is still as openly liberal in terms of its, tone and tenor and headlines than it was a couple years ago. Look, I still think The Times is liberal, (laughs) but I think that reporters and editors are much more cautious in terms of their approach to coverage because I think there has been some public reaction in a negative way to the idea that journalists are liberal Democrats crusading for right and wrong. I mean, Bennett accurately writes... That trust has eroded in media over the last fifteen years, uh, and, and a lot of that is because journalists, I think, uh, you know, are seen as not being fair. That's not a new criticism, but I think it's 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 beca- it became even more true in the Trump years. I think there are
0: a couple of things here that are related, and and I broadly agree with you. The world was on fire in 2020, and and the Times', uh turmoil was reflective of the same turmoil you saw. Throughout corporate America, as companies were coming to terms really quickly with a lot of blind spots and a lot of mistakes, people were working from home. Anyway, it was it was a it was a recipe for for disaster, and I think there has been some of a of a pullback too. Uh, Bennett made two points inadvertently in that story that uh, really hit home with me, based in part on my experience there. And I think this uh, hopefully answers your question. The first is. The best of the times and the worst of the times comes down to the fact that there's this 1,400-person newsroom of incredibly talented people who are managed by former journalists who, who are non-professional managers, um, it, mm-hmm. it, it, there, there's more talent than they know what to do with. And as a result, there's too much time for infighting, bickering, trouble starting, and sort of career-ending bomb throwing. And that's baked into the cake. I, I've actually sort of often thought that the, if, if there was a culling at a certain point, because there was a massive hiring in you know, 2016, 2020, if there was a culling at a certain point, it would make it easier because there, it would be easier to manage the newsroom to, to to make people more productive. I mean, there there are uh, there are true sort of you know rubber rooms of Times reporters who have not been seen or heard from for years because they can't get through that infrastructure. It takes a certain political savvy mm-hmm. that some people have that, that, that's often divorced from actual reportorial talent. The other thing too is that everyone in of the fourteen hundred people has a view that that is unequivocal and unique of what they think the times is and should be and you know what we saw in Bennett's piece he has one too the times should be this it must be this this is the times mission it's like easy buddy all right that that was real ivory tower stuff for me and it actually um you know that's where I feel like he he needed to sort of keep some of these thoughts to himself because he wasn't doing himself a service that the times does the best job it can uh, uh under the circumstances and it is a public company but there are some other things that that story let me let me down a couple of other um rabbit holes one of them is when you look at the um the economics of the times you you realize that like as large and successful as it's gotten in recent years it doesn't you know the board has a lot of cousins on it it's it doesn't feature uh, widely recognizable CEOs from other industries. There is a sense that, anyway, in, in to my untrained eye, that all of this comes down to management. And this gets very meta if you realize that Bennett, the author of this, you know, seventeen thousand word manifesto, is actually an example of a former manager. There, then it sort of encapsulates the problem pretty perfectly.
1: Either way you look at it, this piece is either a love letter to a bygone era of hallowed journalism days gone by, or a grudge driven screed. <laughs> one one thing I, I didn't ask you and I don't know the answer to, is James Bennett like Working for The Economist now is this a freelance piece? Like, what's? Oh still? no, no, he's
0: um he's he's been working at The Economist, writing the Lex column. You know, The Economist has unsigned editorials, so he's been writing the Lex column for like a a, a, a year ish. Um, uh, and it's a very it, it was a strange career decision. You know, he he was he went dark for about a year, uh, which is sort of why I assume that there was a, a healthy payout. I think when Jill was pushed out, it was uh, a couple okay. million dollars. Um, uh, I don't think it was like you know th- that kind of money, but um, but yes. He's doing that, and it's a representation, probably, of the uh, the fewer opportunities afforded to him. And uh, he's a talented guy. That's that's too bad, but you know, he's he's his talents are, are uh, have been obscured of late.
1: Well, I will say to his credit, unlike a lot of journalists these days, is actually a good writer. It's well yep. written. That's something we care about at Puck is the actual act of writing. Again, if anyone out there who works for the Economist wants to slide into my DMs and let me know what <laughs> font you used. For this piece, I, I just, you know, I love my fonts. I choose different fonts when I write. I don't know if anyone, other reporters out there are like that. It helps me write when I look at a pretty font. John, thank you so much, buddy. All right, brother. See you later. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance.